This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Christ's Doctrine, a Firm Foundation. In the first half, Douglas D. Holmes shares his address, The Doctrine of Christ, Our Daily Walk. Then in the second half, Stephen L. Taylor speaks on The Sure Foundation. It is a great blessing to be with you today. It's difficult to express what a surreal experience it is for me to stand at this pulpit and speak at a BYU devotional. For many years, I have been somewhat of a BYU devotional junkie. When I was a student here, I discovered you could purchase cassette tapes, some of you won't know what those are, of selected devotional talks, and I bought several. I remember well Stephen Covey's talk, An Educated Conscience. Listening to Truman Madsen's talk, A House of Glory, was perhaps the best temple preparation I received. Nowadays, I have BYU Speeches podcast and listen regularly. My son, Blake, plays on the BYU hockey team. Yeah, BYU has a hockey team. And he fears I like the devotionals more than his hockey games. And I probably do. In all my years of listening to these devotionals, it never occurred to me that I would be speaking in one. So since receiving this assignment a few months ago, I have pondered and prayed earnestly to know what the Lord would have me share. As I pondered, I was reminded of these words from President Dieter F. Uchtdorf. Strength comes from being settled on a firm foundation of truth and light. It comes from placing our attention and efforts on the basics of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes from paying attention to divine things that matter most. He continued, Let us simplify our lives a little. Let us make the changes necessary to refocus our lives on the sublime beauty of the simple, humble path of Christian discipleship. That path leads always towards a life of meaning, gladness, and peace. Brothers and sisters, we live in days where the mists of darkness are exceedingly great. Satan is the father of lies, and his lies blindeth the eyes and hardeneth the hearts of the children of men. One of Satan's subtle but more pervasive strategies is to distract us from things that matter most with a never-ending array of mind-numbing trivialities. So with President Uchtdorf's counsel burning in my heart, I will focus today on the basics of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, the sublime path of Christian discipleship. My desire is for each of us to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him. My message is centered in that quest and how we can be more diligent, joyful, and successful in that journey. As you begin a new semester and a new year, I hope that some of what I say may help you focus your goals on divine things that matter most. I invite you to pay close attention to what the Holy Ghost whispers to your heart during our time together. More important than the words I speak, I pray our hearts and minds will be open to receive light and truth from the Holy Ghost. The light and truth that the restoration of the fullness of the gospel has brought about can push away all darkness from our minds and lives. 
we need to remember the Lord has also described our day as noonday. A foundational truth we need to clearly understand is our divine identity. Many of you, since you were children, have been taught and sung, I am a child of God, and He has sent me here. As you have sung and listened, you have felt the Spirit witness this truth to you. Unfortunately, as with any basic truth that is repeated often, there is a danger that it may become trite. In other words, we say it, hear it, and sing it so frequently that we may not give much thought to what it actually means to be a child of God. Knowing what it means to be a child of God requires us to come to know God. Only as God is revealed to us through the Holy Ghost can we comprehend the inheritance that can be ours as His children. As God's glory, attributes, and perfections are revealed to us, the reality of being sons and daughters, children of a king, pierces our heart and fills us with hope and joy. However, coming to know God is not for the spiritually lazy. He can only be known through revelation, and powerful personal revelation from the Holy Ghost requires diligent seeking and righteous living. Joseph Smith said, It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. Joseph also gave us insights into the effort required to understand who God is. He said, The things of God are of deep import, and time, and experience, and careful, and ponderous, and solemn thought can only find them out. If we want to know God and His Son, we would do well to turn off our devices, remove other distractions, and spend meaningful time in careful, ponderous, and solemn thought. I invite you to be serious about your study of God, your pursuit to truly know Him. He is revealed by His prophets and through the power of the Holy Ghost as we seek Him. No message appears in the Scripture more times in more ways than ask and ye shall receive. When I hear this invitation, I hear a loving Father pleading with His children to learn of Him, to commune with Him. As we come to know God, we begin to really know ourselves. These two things cannot be separated. Joseph Smith taught, If men do not comprehend God, they do not comprehend themselves. As we come to know God and consequently ourselves better, we will see more clearly and understand more deeply what it means to be His sons and daughters. We will start to glimpse the profound fact that we have divine DNA within us, as well as God's transcendent promise that we can receive and possess all that He has and is. But there is another critical dimension in coming to know God. Just as a shallow understanding of God leads to a shallow understanding of our true identity, a naive understanding of being God's children can blind us from the reality of our present state. What will strike you as you come to know God more fully is your current relative nothingness. That is what happened to Moses when he came to understand his true identity as a son of God. He declared, Now I know that man is nothing, 
which thing I never had supposed. In a similar experience, Nephi declared, O wretched man that I am. This confrontation with reality or our fallen state is also illustrated in King Benjamin's message to his people. It's important to remember that King Benjamin described his people as being diligent in keeping the commandments of the Lord. These people were like us, what we might call covenant-keeping Latter-day Saints. But as King Benjamin delivered his angelic message, his people saw God and his Son more clearly than they ever had before. This greater understanding of God caused these people to view themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. The knowledge of God's goodness, His matchless power, His wisdom, His patience, His long-suffering, and most significantly, the sacrifice of His Son awakened them to a sense of their worthless and fallen state. That may not sound like much of a reward for coming to know God better. Don't we want a God that makes us feel good and builds us up? Yes. But we also want and worship a God of truth, a God who deals not in illusion but in reality, not in niceties but in power and glory. For we don't simply want to know God. We want to become like Him. And until we see ourselves as we really are, we can't become what He really is. Thus, to understand our identity, we need to understand the fall, the reality that King Benjamin's people finally confronted. President Ezra Taft Benson taught, Just as a man does not really desire food until he is hungry, so he does not desire the salvation of Christ until he knows why he needs Christ. No one adequately and properly knows why he needs Christ until he understands and accepts the doctrine of the fall and its effect upon all mankind. The fall is how we commonly refer to those events that led to our current condition and the consequent opportunity for our exaltation. But to understand the individual nature of the fall, we need to see it at a personal level. Latter-day Revelation teaches that because of Christ's Atonement, each of us is born into this world pure and innocent. But we disobey God. We lose our innocence and become natural or fallen man. We have each made an independent choice to sin, to hearken to the voice of Satan. We become, in the language of the scriptures, subject to the will of the devil, which tragically becomes our own will. In effect, we sell our birthright for a mess of pottage, or as the prodigal son, spend our inheritance in riotous living. When we understand we indeed are children of the Most High God, but also realize we have made choices that prevent us from returning home, we understand how desperately we need Christ to regain what we have lost. We understand we need another chance, a way to be born again. Alma declared this clearly. Marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming 
his sons and daughters. And thus they become new creatures. And unless they do this, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. To our great joy, God has provided a Savior who performed a perfect atonement and a path for us to return home, to receive all that he has. His covenant to us, his children, is that despite our inevitable fall, we can be transformed from beings whose impure hearts, desires, and wills cannot abide his presence into sanctified beings who can abide his glory. We can indeed be born again to a glorious inheritance. The robe, the ring, and the fatted calf can be ours again. But how are we born again? How do we grow in light and truth until this perfect day? We walk the path God prepared for us. That path is called the doctrine of Christ. It is the path that for you return missionaries was the core of your purpose. Faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. The path is both beautifully simple and yet profoundly deep. The very simplicity of the path and our assumed sophistication can lead us to look beyond the mark as Nephi's people did when he masterfully taught this doctrine. Our desire for more intricate solutions also may be one reason Christ strongly cautions us with these words. This is my doctrine. And whoso buildeth upon this buildeth upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. And whoso shall declare more or less than this, and establish it for my doctrine, the same cometh of evil, and is not built upon my rock, but buildeth upon a sandy foundation. I hope you will stay with me as we try and see the profound nature of this simple path. For it is through the doctrine of Christ that we access the power of Christ's atonement into our lives. It is how we receive the enabling power of grace. It is how we are changed and become partakers of the divine nature. Rather than view the doctrine of Christ as a few items on a lengthy gospel checklist of things to do, I have found it helpful to see the doctrine of Christ as the daily path I walk to come unto Christ. I hope a few simple graphics will help as I briefly discuss each step. Faith in Jesus Christ is the first principle of the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ is the source of every good gift. It is faith that motivates and inspires us to take all other steps Why repent or be baptized if we don't truly believe that Christ, by virtue of his atonement, can save us from the hopelessness of our fallen state? You may remember these words from King Benjamin's people when they confronted the reality of their fallen state. Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ that we may receive forgiveness of our sins and our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Their exceeding faith in Jesus Christ delivered them from their hopeless 
state and filled their souls with joy. We sometimes criticize our evangelical friends for their sole focus on believing in Christ to be saved. But it is through true faith in Christ and Him alone that we are saved. The Book of Mormon is a very clear witness of this. We must recognize that faith in Christ is not static but can grow unto exceeding and even perfect faith. Brothers and sisters, we must believe and we must believe more than we do now. A critical and powerful element of the doctrine of Christ is that each step is connected to and motivates the next. Faith always leads to repentance. Samuel the Lamanite taught, If ye believe on his name, ye ye will repent. And I would add, the more you believe, the more you will repent. This is simple celestial calculus. True faith in Christ is always unto repentance. Faith in Christ always leads to repentance because the more we learn of Christ, his character, perfections, and attributes, the more we trust him and the more willing we are to give up our own agenda for his. We offer a broken heart to receive a new heart. Turning to Christ and following him more diligently or obedience is the essence of repentance. Sometimes I think we don't understand repentance. We tend to picture a tearful confession to a bishop regarding the violation of a law of chastity or some other serious transgression. Repentance is certainly needed in such cases. But more often it is the small and simple things in our life that need to change. The Lord calls them things that are not pleasing in my sight. If we want to be holy as He is holy, we need to yield our heart to Him. God knows the next step you need to take in your journey to Him. And if you will ask and listen, He will tell you. Elder Larry R. Lawrence said in a recent conference talk, The Spirit may surprise you with messages like, You need to clean up your room. You need to stop interrupting. Or you need to manage the distractions in your life and focus more on those around you. All of these are individual invitations to repent. They come from the Holy Ghost who promises that he will show us all things what we should do. My experience is those invitations from the Holy Ghost always lead me to be a more diligent follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hugh Nibley shared this gem on repentance. Who is righteous? Anyone who is repenting, no matter how bad he has been. If he is repenting, he is a righteous man. There is hope for him. And no matter how good he has been all his life, if he is not repenting, he is a wicked man. The Lord says, say nothing but repentance. Maybe we should pay more attention to that. Our repentance leads to and is completed as we make covenants with God in ordinances. In the ordinance of baptism and the sacrament, we witness our repentance and commitment to follow God in a physical sign as we sing a deed for word. Elder D. Todd Christofferson taught, The renunciation of sin coupled with our covenant of obedience completes our repentance. Indeed, repentance remains unfinished without that covenant. Significantly, the ordinance of the sacrament confirms our repentance and renews 
all covenants we have entered into with the Lord and thus becomes a vital conduit for us to receive the power of godliness into our lives. Our weekly physical witness of our commitment to remember and obey, our willingness, even our anxiousness to take Christ's name upon us is a vital and empowering part of this journey. In the sacrament, we are also reminded that becoming like Christ is a step-by-step process, little by little, week by week, we are transformed. Ordinances unlock greater access to the Holy Ghost in our lives. When we understand the doctrine of Christ, our greatest desire is to receive the Holy Ghost. Elder David A. Bednar declared, The commandments from God we obey and the inspired counsel from church leaders we follow principally focus upon obtaining the companionship of the Spirit. Fundamentally, all gospel teaching and activities are centered on coming unto Christ by receiving the Holy Ghost in our lives. End of quote. In my continuing quest to walk this path, I have been inspired by these words of Elder Bruce R. McConkie. As a starving man, as starving men crave a crust of bread, as choking men thirst for water, so do the righteous yearn for the Holy Ghost. There is no price too high, no sacrifice too great, if out of it all we enjoy the gift of the Holy Ghost. It is in receiving the Holy Ghost that we receive the baptism of fire. This baptism removes the effects and bondage of our sins and sanctifies us. The Holy Ghost also imparts to us the fruits and gifts of the Spirit, the attributes and power of God. Chief among those attributes is His perfect love, charity. Charity is not an emotion or an action. It is not something we simply feel or do. Charity is who the Savior is. It is His most defining and dominant attribute. And God's promise is the Holy Ghost will fill us with this perfect love. C.S. Lewis observed after the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can only be done by God. It is through the Holy Ghost that God does this marvelous work within us. He gives us a new heart. Paul criticized the saints of his day for their zeal in going about to establish their own righteousness instead of submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. At times, we may be guilty of this same sin. We need to remember that Christ is the fountain of all righteousness, and he will impart that righteousness to us through the Holy Ghost. It will then be in us a reservoir of living water. With Joseph Smith, I testify that as the Son partakes of the fullness of the Father through the Spirit, so the saints are by the same Spirit to be partakers of the same fullness, to enjoy the same glory. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to make receiving the Holy Ghost your overarching spiritual quest. 
This leads us to the little understood doctrine of enduring to the end. Enduring to the end simply implies we engage in this cycle repeatedly and iteratively. We know that we are not transformed into Christ-like beings overnight. As Joseph said, no man arrives in a minute. We are changed degree by degree in the process of time. As we grow in faith, participate in ordinances, and receive ever greater endowments of the Spirit in our life, the Lord describes His course as one eternal round. But I don't think He intends us to just go around in circles. I have found it helpful to visualize this journey as a continuing upward spiral, a staircase, if you will. This image came to me most clearly when I first saw this spiral staircase in the Nauvoo Temple. This image gives me hope and perspective that I can make this journey to come unto Christ by diligently applying His doctrine in my life. Step by step and degree by degree, I can continue in the course of the Lord, His eternal round, and His grace can carry me upward. I love the perspective and wisdom President Ezra Taft Benson provided relative to this journey. We must be careful as we seek to become more and more godlike that we do not become discouraged and lose hope. Becoming Christ-like is a lifetime pursuit that very often involves growth and change that is slow, almost imperceptible. The scriptures record remarkable accounts of men whose lives changed dramatically in an instant, as it were. Such astonishing examples of the power to change even those steeped in sin give confidence that the Atonement can reach even those deepest in despair. But we must be cautious as we discuss these remarkable examples. Though they are real and powerful, they are the exception more than the rule. For every Paul, for every King Lamoni, there are hundreds and thousands of people who find the process of repentance much more subtle, much more imperceptible. Day by day, they move closer to the Lord, little realizing they are building a godlike life. They live quiet lives of goodness, service, and commitment. They are like the Lamanites, who the Lord said were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. President Benson understood this journey. Can you see how viewing the doctrine of Christ in this way can deepen his influence in your life and bring focus and hope to your journey to be with him and be like him. This is the doctrine of Christ and the only way we come unto him and are perfected in him. There is a final and critical aspect of the doctrine of Christ that I must mention. Every process needs fuel to keep it going, and this one is no different. In this case, The Word of God provides the fuel. The light of the Word ignites our faith and then continues to increase our faith as we feast on and obey it. Speaking of our journey on this path, Nephi testifies, You have not come thus far, save it were by the Word of Christ, with unshaken faith in Him, and that we need to press forward feasting on the Word of Christ. If we are to endure to the end, Like the fuel in our vehicles or the carbohydrates in our bodies, we need constant nourishment by the Word of God, the iron rod, to move us along this path. 
because we need ever-increasing faith for this journey, daily feasting on the words of the scriptures, living prophets, and the personal whisperings of the Holy Ghost are essential to successfully navigate this path. Elder Richard G. Scott understood this when he said, Feasting on the word of God each day is more important than sleep, school, schoolwork, television shows, video games, or social media. Brothers and sisters, I testify this is the way we are born again and receive the glorious inheritance that is ours as children of the living God. As you begin this new year, I invite you to reevaluate your goals to ensure you focus on the simple, humble path of Christian discipleship. I promise, as you do, you will receive grace, the strength that comes from being built on a sure foundation of light and truth. You will find joy and peace in a journey that increasingly reveals God and His glory. You will see more clearly your divine identity, and you will be filled with hope that you, in fact, can receive all that He has. I testify with all my heart that Jesus Christ is God's Almighty Son. This is His doctrine, the only and sure way to come unto Him in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Christ's Doctrine, a Firm Foundation. We've just heard from Douglas D. Holmes. After the break, we'll return with Stephen L. Taylor for The Sure Foundation. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Christ's Doctrine, a Firm Foundation. Next is Stephen L. Taylor, Associate Dean of the BYU College of Life Sciences at the time of this address, titled The Sure Foundation. In 1969, I had the privilege of living in the enchanting city of Cusco, Peru. Each day as my missionary companion and I walked along the stone streets of Cusco, I never ceased to marvel. Much of the city is literally built on ancient Inca ruins. The workmanship of the carved stones, all fit together without mortar, is exquisite. The strength of such walls, made from precisely cut stones, many with interior interlocking arms, somewhat like giant ancient Lagos, is incredible. It is ironic that we call them ruins, because even though they were constructed many centuries ago, most of them remain perfectly intact today. Peru is a land of many earthquakes, and we are familiar with the terrible destruction of the 2007 quake there. Tens of thousands were left homeless as buildings in a large region collapsed from the powerful tremors. Many are still trying to rebuild their homes and their lives. Through the centuries, such disasters have occurred repeatedly in Peru, and while more recently built construction crumbles, the Inca-built structures remain. 
somehow these ancient stones fit together perfectly, withstand whatever natural disasters occur. They remain a firm foundation. You are familiar with Christ's teaching. Therefore, whoso heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. In 1976, my wife Diane and I, along with our two small children, traveled to Iran, where I had a contract through an American company to teach English to Iranian Air Force pilots. These pilots were in flight school, being taught by American instructors in English to fly modern military aircraft. American-Iranian relations were very different then than they are today. While in Iran, we lived in Isfahan, an ancient city with beautiful mosques, bridges, fountains, and parks. We witnessed some of the amazing workmanship from the glory days of ancient Persia. These centuries-old treasures were obviously built on solid foundations. During our stay in Isfahan, we rented a house in a new, rapidly spreading area on the outskirts of the city called the Flats. Many of the houses there were being built quickly for rental to foreigners, particularly Americans, who were coming in large numbers to work on various projects going on in Iran at the time. The house we rented was brand new. It lacked some of the comforts and conveniences that we were used to, but it had other luxuries that were new to us, such as beautiful chandeliers and marble floors. One day, while we were out walking in our neighborhood, we observed preparations being made to build a new house. Workers were clearing the ground, moving rocks and piles of dirt. A day or two later, we saw chalk lines on the ground showing where the walls were to be located, both exterior and interior. Within days, piles of mud adobe bricks appeared, and the walls began to rise on the bare ground where the chalk lines indicated. My wife and I looked at each other and said, Where is the foundation? Ironically, about this very same time, we began experiencing problems in our house. We could hear what sounded like water running in the house, even when all of the faucets were turned off. One day as my wife was eating uh, lunch with the children in the kitchen, she heard a strange, loud noise. She turned and watched in shock as she witnessed the floor in the adjacent room to the kitchen watched the floor cave in. Later, as I returned home to the scene, I found that the wall of the garage had begun to disintegrate into oozing mud. A leak in the water pipe located on the dirt directly beneath our house was literally washing away the foundation of our house. We were experiencing firsthand the problems of a house built on a sandy foundation. 
Though our house had many ornate features and fancy materials, the foundation was weak. We moved out, and unfortunately the landlord was left with a total disaster. Christ warned, And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Our house in Isfahan didn't even require a strong storm to bring it down, only a small leak in a water pipe underneath it. Now, much more important than the foundations of our houses or buildings or bridges are the foundations upon which we build our lives. Our true desires, priorities, and aspirations guide our lives now and will determine our future possibilities. The spiritual foundation upon which we choose to build can be a sure, firm foundation or a weak, sandy one. You know that Helaman counseled, And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation a foundation whereon, if men build, they cannot fall. Today we sang the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. The foundation of which we sing is, of course, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the sure foundation. I will now relate three experiences of family members which illustrate the powerful effect of the words of this hymn and the message that the sure foundation upon which we must build is our Savior, Jesus Christ. My third great-grandmother, Amanda Barnes Smith, witnessed the terrible tragedy known as the Hans Mill Massacre on October 30, 1838. Just hours after arriving at the settlement in Missouri, Amanda's husband, Warren, and her son, Sardius, were shot and killed, along with 13 others, by invading mobsters. Amanda, with her two daughters and two other sons, survived. Her six-year-old son, Alma, however, was critically wounded, his hip blown away by gunshot. As the grief-stricken wife and mother tried to deal with the shock and horror of the situation, she later related, quote, We laid little Alma on a bed in our tent, and I examined the wound. It was a ghastly sight. I knew not what to do. It was night now, yet was I there all that long, dreadful night with my dead and my wounded, and none but God as our physician and help. O my Heavenly Father, I cried, what shall I do? 
Thou seest my poor wounded boy and knowest my inexperience. O Heavenly Father, direct me what to do. And then I was directed as by a voice speaking to me. Amanda goes on to describe how she followed the promptings to repeatedly clean the wound with a cloth saturated with lye from the hickory ashes of their smoldering fire. She then placed a poultice made from the roots of a slippery elm tree into the wound. After covering the wound with linen, she poured a bottle of balsam into the wound, which greatly soothed Alma's pain. She then laid him on a bed, face down, and instructed him, Now you lie like that and don't move, and the Lord will make you a new hip. In the desperate days and weeks that followed, she and a few other bereaved widows who could not flee stayed behind at the home of Brother David Evans. I continue in Amanda's words, quote, In our utter desolation, what could we women do but pray? Prayer was our only source of comfort, our Heavenly Father our only helper. One day a mobber came from the mill with the captain's fiat. The captain says, If you women don't stop your blank prayer, he will send down a posse and kill every blank one of you. Our prayers were hushed in terror. We dared not let our voices be heard in the house in supplication. I could pray in my bed or in silence, but I could not live thus long. This godly silence was more intolerable than had been the night of the massacre. I could bear it no longer. I pined to hear once more my own voice in petition to my Heavenly Father. I stole down into a cornfield and crawled into a stout of corn. It was a temple of the Lord to me at that moment. I prayed aloud and most fervently. When I emerged from the corn, a voice spoke to me. It was a voice as plain as I ever heard one. It was a voice repeating a verse of the saint's hymn, The soul who on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amanda continues, From that moment I had no more fear. I felt that nothing could hurt me. After five weeks, Alma miraculously recovered. Amanda and her surviving children left Missouri for Quincy, Illinois, and then Nauvoo. They later came west with the saints, Alma driving a wagon the full distance. He later married, had a family, and served four missions for the Church. Amanda remained faithful and experienced the Lord's promised blessing. Through the years, Amanda's example of faith and reliance upon the firm foundation of the Savior for strength has continued to inspire her many descendants. One of Amanda's great-great-grandsons is Hal Lauren Taylor, my father.
In February 1966, he was serving as president of the Southwest Indian Mission, headquartered in Holbrook, Arizona. While in Salt Lake City for training meetings, he and my mother had to take my two-year-old sister, Susan, to the primary children's hospital. She was critically ill. When the meetings concluded, Dad left Mom and Susie there in the hospital in Salt Lake City while he returned to the mission in Arizona. He later recounted, quote, I had a terrible cloud of discouragement over me, and I didn't want to leave them. This heaviness seemed to become worse the closer I got to Holbrook. When I arrived that night, I was so discouraged that I felt I would simply work and work hard enough that I might overcome this terrible feeling. He started going through the large stack of letters on his desk. A thick letter from a friend who worked out on the Indian reservation caught his attention. He opened it and began to read, hoping to receive some words of encouragement. Instead, the letter contained harsh criticism of him personally and his approach to teaching the gospel to the Lamanites. He stopped reading partway through the letter, his discouragement reaching a new low. He buried his face in his hands and cried aloud, What am I doing down here? Feeling somewhat that the Lord had forsaken him. In that moment the following occurred, and I quote from him, I no more than said those words when a glorious spiritual experience took place, wherein it was brought so clearly to my mind that I thought someone was speaking these words to me. Fear not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, I'll help thee, and cause thee to stand. That is where the message ended. I looked up from having my head in my hands, almost expecting to see someone or the words written on the wall because of the glorious feeling which I had. I saw no one but know that somehow the Lord was giving me the encouragement which I badly needed. I remember straightening up my shoulders and raising my head and feeling a strength that I had never felt before. I realized, like I had never realized before, that the Lord did not neglect His servants. I cannot remember ever having a real discouraging feeling for the next two and a half years of mission work. That's the end of the quote. My sister Susie survived. Although she still has health challenges, she is today the happy mother of a missionary son who this week completes his service in Chicago, Illinois. My father finished his mission in Arizona and four more that followed, faithfully relying on that firm foundation, the Savior. He recently celebrated his 92nd birthday. Now move forward two generations to an experience of Hal's granddaughter and Amanda's fourth-great-granddaughter, Lindy Taylor. In 1998, 
While serving as a missionary in Bangkok, Thailand, she and her companion were teaching two investigators and had just committed them to be baptized the following week. Suddenly, an intense feeling of fear and uncertainty overcame her. As they left the church, her Thai companion, Sister Juan Prasiet, sensed Lindy's anxiety and began to sing, Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. Lindy wrote that, quote, As we rode our bikes from the church, the hymn echoed in my ears, I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand. As we approached the corner, I heard the sound of a truck coming down the road. The Spirit told me, in a direct and forceful way, to stop right where I was. I told Sister Juan Prasset, who was behind me, to stop too. I looked and saw a huge garbage truck barreling down the street. It was coming so fast we didn't have time to do anything. All of a sudden, the truck swung around the corner just in front of us, barely missing us. I felt God's protection, the presence of His angels. Fear not, I am with thee. I came home last night knowing that in my efforts to help others gain a testimony and in our own individual lives, we must have faith. End of the quote. The two young ladies being taught that night were baptized the following week and remained faithful members of the Church. Our daughter, Lindy, now Lindy Barrett, is here today, a valiant wife and mother, and the faithful links of the family continue on, built on that sure foundation that never faileth. The Lord reminded Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and all of us, quote, Therefore, fear not, little flock, let earth and hell combine against you. For if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. Finally, let us consider the all-important question, how? How do we build the foundation of our lives on Jesus Christ, the sure foundation? The answer may seem simple, but in reality is supernally profound. We make and keep sacred covenants with Him. In the waters of baptism, in weekly sacrament meetings, and in holy temples, we promise to take His name upon us, to always remember Him and His Atonement, and to keep His commandments which He has given us. In other words, we covenant to make Jesus Christ the foundation of our lives. Our thoughts, desires, and actions are centered upon our relationship with Him. As we do this, He promises to bless us with His Spirit, His guidance, His help, and His support. And of this we can be totally confident, for the Lord keeps His promises. Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught in October 2008 General Conference, quote, 
When we join in the solemnity that should always accompany the ordinance of the sacrament, we are qualified for the companionship and revelation of the Spirit. This is the way we get direction for our lives and peace along the way. The resurrected Lord emphasized the importance of the sacrament when he visited the American continent and instituted this ordinance among the faithful Nephites. He blessed the emblems of the sacrament and gave them to his disciples and the multitude, commanding, And this shall ye always do to those who repent and are baptized in my name, and ye shall do it in remembrance of my blood, which I have shed for you, that ye may witness unto the Father that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my Spirit to be with you. And if ye shall always do these things, blessed are ye, for ye are built upon my rock. But whoso among you shall do more or less than these are not built upon my rock, but are built upon a sandy foundation. And when the rains descend, and the floods come, and the winds blow, and beat upon them, they shall fall. That's the end of the quote. To this I add my witness, that as we make and keep sacred covenants with the Lord, that He will keep His promises to us. Our lives will be built on that sure foundation and there will be no need for fear. We will receive guidance and encouragement and strength in times of need, for He understands how to succor us perfectly, because He has suffered all of our sins, all of our fears, our pains, our temptations, and our infirmities. Our personal infirmities are overcome through the firm foundation, Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. Of this I bear testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Christ's Doctrine, A Firm Foundation, with thoughts from Douglas D. Holmes and Stephen L. Taylor. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.